Art and resistance have always gone together. From Picasso's Guernica to the 1968 student protests in France, the art produced has been powerful and symbolic of a time or of a movement. Talking to an audience at the Art Republic Gallery, lecturer Katie Baynard from Brighton University takes us through some of those seminal moments. What's more, she brings us closer to the present day by looking at how art is now helping to influence the Extinction Rebellion movement. This is Art Related Noise. We started experimenting with painting. There's so many avenues of art. We're surrounded by images. Just being lost in this sea of possibility. Announcing that I was going to be an artist. It brings the work I do alive even more. They could be part of this work as well. Everyone's got their own personal connection to something. Good evening everyone. Thanks for coming down to Art Republic this evening. I'm going to hand it straight over to Katie who is a lecturer at the Design and Architecture at Brighton University and she's going to do an amazing talk for us this evening at, on Art as Resistance and then later on we have some lino printing next door um, with Extinction Rebellion. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. So the talk's going to be about half an hour long, and, and then there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions. The talk is, is really about what does creative resistance mean, and it's taking some examples from history and then talking about Extinction Rebellion and how they've used um, creativity and, and art and graphic design in the actions that they've done. So the first question I wanted to ask everybody, you don't have to answer, is what does resistance mean to you? And what does creative resistance mean to you? Because I think it can mean lots of different things to different people. And you'll see that a lot of the ideas in Extinction Rebellion have a historical legacy and come from acts of creative resistance in the past. So we're going to first of all explore some of those um, different acts of creative resistance in the past. So, first of all, starting going back 100 years to the Russian Revolution, some of you may have seen this image before, it's called the Monument to the Third International, and it's by um, an architect called Vladimir Tatlin. And the idea of this monument was actually for it to be 400 metres tall, so taller than the Eiffel Tower, and it was going to stand as a kind of monument to the success of the revolution. And in fact, it never actually got built because the construction required was so complicated and expensive. But it was part of a movement called constructivism. And the ideas behind the movement were this kind of radical avant-garde of Russian revolutionary young people, artists, designers and architects, who wanted to change the world through art. So their idea was that instead of the kind of formal compositions of art of the past, they would use the materials, and it was all about the truth of the materials and what the materials could mean. And this is an example of the um, monument, the, the kind of model of the monument being taken out to a demonstration, to a, to a rally. And you can also see a, a theatre piece there. So it's kind of, you can see some of the seeds of protest now in the way that they were using a kind of giant construction of, as a way of highlighting their ideals and their ideologies. And also from that period, this is by El Lizitsky, and it's called Beat the Whites with the Red Wedge. I mean, I think it's incredible this is 100 years old um, because the graphics seem so strong and so fresh. Um, but essentially, um, El Lizitsky was an artist, and he wanted to use really strong, bold imagery um, to highlight the idea of the, the Reds, i.e. the Communists, beating the Whites, i.e. the White Russians. Now, we all know that Communism did go on to do some bad things, so <laughs> we, we can see this with a historical eye, but 
at the time, there was a kind of fervent sense of the need for change, you know, the, the, the old Russian aristocracy who they wanted to overthrow. So I'm going to move on to the next example. So this is Guernica by Pablo Picasso, and this is a very famous painting, and many of you may have heard of this painting or seen it before. It was painted by Pablo Picasso as a direct response to the bombing of the town of Guernica in the Basque region of Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Pablo Picasso was so moved by the plight of innocent civilians that he painted this very, very moving painting, which is really about the tragedy of war and how tragic it was that innocent civilians were just mown down by the bombs, of, which were bombed by Nazi Germany. Um, and it was actually taken on tour, and the painting really helped to create a movement around the Spanish Civil War of people going out to fight against um, the fascists and to try and protest against the Civil War. That was in the 1930s. So going back a bit to the, the just after or during and after the First World War, um, this is from a movement called Dada. I don't know how many people here have heard of Dada. Dada, yes, <laughs> Dada. Um, no one really knows where the name Dada originated, but um, the idea of Dadaism, or da being Dadaist, if you like, was to be anti-art. It wasn't necessarily to follow the kind of usual roots of art, but it was rather to kind of turn things on their head, to be absurd, to be different, to be nonsensical. And this um, is George Gross and John Hartfield, who were two artists in Berlin, and um, it says, Die Kunst ist tot, the art is dead. Um, and their ideology was really about um, kind of wanting to ridicule everything that had led to the First World War. So what they saw as the traditional bourgeois values that had led to war. They wanted to turn those things on their heads. And um, there are many different artists as part of this movement and many different kinds of art. But one of the things that they did was they had a, a cabaret called Cabaret Voltaire, which you may have heard of. There's a well-known band with the same name. And... Um, Cabaret Voltaire was a place where they could experiment with performance art, so it was a kind of early beginnings of performance art as protest. And John Hartfield, who was on the previous slide, went on to become a very, very famous collage artist, and this is one of his collages called Adolf the Superman. So he was using his collage, and he called it photomontage, um, as a kind of early form of protest against the rise of Nazi Nazism in Germany. And there's an amazing archive online, actually, of all his work. So he used these kind of very strong graphic images as a way to protest by highlighting, the, for example, the connections between capitalism and Nazism. So in this um, image, you can see that Hitler's stomach is full of money that people have given him, people who were funding Nazi Germany to rise to power. So now um, we're moving on a bit to the 1960s in Paris. And um, the Situationists. The Situationists were a movement who were kind of very underground. They were trying to think about how we occupy the city, how we use city space. They kind of coined the term psychogeography, if you've come across that. And during 1968, there was a kind of popular uprising against the French president, Charles de Gaulle. And um, as part of that, the Situationists were part of a movement that took over the art school and they created what they called the Atelier Populaire, where they basically created hundreds and hundreds of silkscreen posters. So again, you could see this as kind of beginning of inspiration for what Extinction Rebellion are doing now. Um, 
They declared their posters weapons in the service of the struggle and an inseparable part of it. Their rightful places in the centres of conflict, that is to say, in the streets and on the walls of factories. So these bold images were pasted over the walls all over Paris. Jumping again, South Africa. South Africa and, uh, under apartheid, which started in 1948, was the focus of many, many protests, both in South Africa and all over the world. And apartheid, which was a system of government that basically institutionalised racial segregation, um, created massive amounts of resistance. And this is by a South African artist called Demili Feni, and it's called African Ganika. And he's using Pablo Picasso's um, kind of uh, image as a starting point. But it brings up, it brings an image that kind of raises the, the context of colonialism and the impact on the innocent people who, who were in, that, in South Africa who were having to deal with the kind of horrors of apartheid. So there's a kind of insanity in the painting, which is people being driven mad by the situation they're in. And there's something about the use of art that can describe this in a very powerful way. Also, uh, another artist is actually Angolan, but went on to live and work in South Africa, is John Mwafangejo. And this is a, a piece, a woodcut, which was it was titled An Interview of Cape Town University in 1971. And a lot of his work is about race and racial conflict. But he uses um, beautiful woodcuts and linos as his methodology. This is by a black British artist, Keith Piper, and it's a poster that was made as part of the boycott campaign. So artists were using their skills to create artworks which were used for these campaigns around anti-apartheid. And uh, another artist who also contributed work was Peter Kennard, whose, post whose poster here is called Apartheid South Africa, and it refers to the fact that in South Africa... Areas were segregated, even benches were segregated. This bench says Europeans only on it. And so it's a referral. By combining a very shocking image with a kind of everyday image, he's highlighting the, the, shock, the, the horrors of people having to live in that society and, and the kind of degrading and, and brutal way that black people were treated. And Peter Kennard went on to create graphics for the peace movement as well, including um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, whose logo was designed by Gerald Holtham. So he also used photo montage like John Hartfield. Um, and these are two works called Broken Missile and Protest and Survive. Now, um, looking at other kind of artists that used poster art... This is Barbara Kruger, Your Body is a Battleground. And I just wanted to put in a couple of examples of feminist artists who used poster art because they're so graphically strong. And this is amazing because she's kind of combining the sort of the typology of, of tabloid press and the sort of very sensational graphics with this kind of nuanced image of a woman's face divided in two. And it's a poster about a march for abortion rights. And another... Um, example of, of uh, feminist art was the Gorilla Girls, whose posters and performance campaigns are all about getting art by women into art galleries. So this is a really good example of these very bold images that kind of shock people into understanding something. Another kind of trope of, of uh, resistance art is using performance. And this is a piece by Guillermo Gomez-Pena and Coco Fisco called The Couple in the Cage. And I won't really be able to do it justice in a very short few sentences. But basically, um, they started this, 
this tour 500 years after Columbus's arrival in the Americas, and they traveled through different towns, presenting themselves as undiscovered Amerindians from an island in the Gulf of Mexico. They called their homeland Guatinu and themselves Guatinaos, and they performed a series of what they called traditional tasks using obvious cliches. And what they did in the end was make a documentary where it was turned on its head and they were actually, the audience became the object on display. And what was really interesting was the way that it showed how kind of um, these racist beliefs just permeate society. And even if people think they are free of them, they, <laughs> they are, uh, continue to influence people. So going forward into art about climate change and environmental art, this is um, a, a kind of project by the laboratory for Insurrectory Imagination, which is headed up by um, John Jordan and, and others. And they formed something called the Clandestine Insurgent Rebel Clown Army in 2003, which was initially to welcome George Bush to London. <laughs> they aimed to take a new methodology of civil disobedience, one that combined direct action with clowning. And the idea of it was not just for them to look like clowns, but for them to actually become clowns. So they had to inhabit the clown. They had to fully get trained up to understand how clowns responded to things. So that they would go up to a policeman and they would act as a clown, not as themselves, but they would really be a clown. And I think that's a really fascinating way and, and a performance kind of strategy that you can see taken into other um, more recent examples. And this is... Uh, Liberate Tate and the Art Not Oil group who have done a series of actions in some of the central London galleries, including at the Tate. This is called License to Spill, and they basically poured pretend oil um, at the Tate summer party, which was to celebrate 20 years of support by BP. That didn't go down well. Uh, and this is called Human Cost, and it's recently been, um, a, a similar action has recently been carried out again. Um, but this was in uh, 2012, I think, and it, it took place on the anniversary of the start of the BP Gulf of Mexico disaster and lasted for 87 minutes, one for every day of the spill. And in 2016, they were successful in getting B um, the Tate to refuse further BP sponsorship. So it was interesting that the strategy of using performance art was actually hugely successful in, in getting change to happen. Um, another artist couple who have done a lot of work around climate change are Ackroyd and Harvey and um, I did ask them to come and speak tonight but unfortunately they're actually in, in Canada doing a, a kind of uh, environmental arts project there but they got involved through doing a trip to Cape Farewell with um, artists and scientists and this is a piece that came out of that called Seeing Red Overdrawn and it's basically a list of taken from the red list of threatened species. And they put the text, you, it's deliberately very um, hard to see, and they, they put the text onto the wall, which is at the David Attenborough building in Cambridge, and invited people to, to draw and write over those, those names to try and draw it attention and bring to visibility the loss of species that's currently going on. And they were instrumental in the beginnings of Culture Declares Emergency, which this is the launch of it at the Tate. Some, a lot of their work uses grass, and they made this grass coat, which you can see there, and both of those people wearing grass coats. 
And the idea behind Culture Declares Emergency was basically a kind of alongside what's happening with Extinction Rebellion to get arts organizations and artists and creative people to declare an emergency and to make that integral to their work so that their work had to pick up on the fact that we have an emergency going on. So now I'm just going to move on to talking about Extinction Rebellion. And everybody probably knows the symbol now. It represents extinction. The circle signifies the planet and the hourglass serves as a warning that time is rapidly running out for many species. The world is currently undergoing a mass extinction event and the symbol is intended to raise awareness of the urgent need for change. Estimates are that somewhere between 30,000 and 140,000 species are becoming extinct every year in what scientists have named the Holocene or six mass extinction. So this has been caused by human activity and is likely to cause widespread ecosystem collapse and render the planet uninhabitable for humans. And it's very emotional saying those words because for all the fact that we can enjoy the creativity around these environmental movements, the fact is they're happening for a very serious reason. The artist that, uh, the, the, the street artist who designed the symbol uh, has said to Extinction Rebellion they could use it, but it can't be used for commercial use. So nothing with the XR logo on it can be sold. They said that the, Im the inspiration from it came from the history of symbols, including cave art symbols, runes, medieval alchemy, and the other sort of famous symbols like CND and so on. But he really wanted, to, or they really wanted to create one that would be for the environmental movement. So um, the graphic identity for Extinction Rebellion was dreamed up by a group of designers and artists, including Claire Farrell, Clive Russell, and Charlie Waterhouse, who run a design agency called This Ain't Rock and Roll, and Miles Glynn. And they were inspired by some of the movements that I've talked about already. So the Situationist Paris 68, and that kind of idea of using posters and very strong graphic images as a way of getting people engaged. They wanted to make all of the, the graphics free to use, but um, they're anti-copyright, so basically they can't be copyrighted. And the typeface, which you can see up there, was based on kind of old um, hand-printed typeface using wood blocks. They've said that the, they aim for the materials to look angry but peaceful, so showing both the rage but also the peaceful means of protest. As I spoke about before, the, the um, Paris 68 atelier where people were making posters on the street and uh, you know, handing them out, that's very much become part of the ethos of Extinction Rebellion and how printing happens in lots of actions. One of the things they've also said was that they wanted the movement to feel inclusive, not hippie and exclusive and not particularly urban. So they wanted a consistent look that could be an umbrella movement and that's very much, I think, behind the ethos of Extinction Rebellion. So, moving on to some actions this year. This is at the London Uprising in, th in the spring. And these are the Red Rebels. And you've probably seen lots of pictures of them already. Um, the Red Rebels aren't one group of people. The Red Rebels is an idea, really. And it was um, an idea that was created by Doug Francisco. And he runs something called Invisible Theatre. And it's based on Butoh dance, which came out of, apparently I didn't know this, um, as a response to the bombing of um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the, the Red Rebels dress in red and move very slowly and deliberately through space and perform very exact movements. And in doing so, they, they actually kind of hold the space and create something different within it. 
They're the very, very calm, silent kind of presence on protests. And that was one of the things that was going on in London. Another one was this amazing pink boat at Oxford Circus. The pink boat became a kind of focal point of protest. People were locked onto it. People were speaking from it. There were parties going on around it. The police surrounded it. In the end, it was cleared away. The boat was a very strong symbol of the rising tides. It was just such a simple message to say, here we are, you need to tell the truth now. There were also lots of amazing um, puppets and performers. These were representing um, endangered species as part of the march. And there was printing going on on the streets where you could go along and you could just hand block print your own T-shirt or piece of fabric. So I was in London and I was really amazed and impressed by all the fantastic creativity. And then in Brighton, we decided to do something <laughs> ourselves. And um, this was the fantastic project that got built. And this was built as a protest to take an action to take place at the Labour Party conference, which happened in September. An amazing crew of people built this light ship, which is on wheels, and was pushed by these guys in their, in their lifeboat costumes. The light ship actually went up to uh, along the front, the seafront, and up to the Labour Party conference. And then it broadcast a version of the shipping forecast <laughs> changed and adapted to highlight the climate emergency. And the amazing thing about this was that the Labour Party conference delegates heard it, listened, saw it, and took it on board, and they voted through the Green New Deal. I hear from other people that actually this was kind of instrumental in a lot of people being more aware and, and deciding to do that. So I think it's an example of how creativity and art can do something different and engage people. And as part of that, we also had a tent with a kind of dystopian world inside it. And we also had um, more printing going on. So there were more kind of ways for people to engage visually with what we're talking about. So again, in London, um, for this Octo recent October um, events, there's been a huge array of creative um, resistance, including massive projections. And uh, what, but what did happen this time was that the police preemptively took away a lot of the beautiful things that had been made to be used as part of the rebellion. So um, here was an amazing uh, sculpture that was going to be used, taken away. And that meant that all of the kind of big builds that you'd expect to see weren't as necessarily as in evidence. But people were still just using their bodies to highlight the issues. And this is part of protest in the city, where people did a kind of die-in um, and did a, a, a kind of piece called You Cannot Eat Money. So that was against Black Rock. Um, and I think these kind of images are really powerful. There are also lots of links between the arms trade and the military and climate change. So this simple image here, you could take that back to some of the photo montages we saw earlier and the kind of simplicity of that communicating the idea. I love this image. This is um, cricket on the mall. So <laughs> I just think there's something really rebellious about it and, and sort of brilliant and performative and, and kind of absurd as well. And this was outside the Tate Modern. So this was a structure that was supposed to be kind of gifted to the Tate. But in fact, the police came and, and took this away um, <laughs> before it could be. But, you know, again, it's kind of taking it taking the message right to where the heart of London's institutions are.
And finally, this was on the final day, and it was it was called Red Handed, and everyone was turned up with red sprayed painted hands and could spray paint red hands onto buildings and onto the street. And at the end of the protest, they went along and handed themselves in, caught red-handed, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> it's just a nice, absurd kind of visual gag, but it's also very powerful and meaningful. But I think I just wanted to go back and say some of the sort of themes and ideas that I think I can, you know, I can see going back 100 years coming through to Extinction Rebellion now, like constructions, theatrical actions and performance, strong, bold graphics, capturing the pain and tragedy of what's going on, but also using absurdity and humour to make some of the statements that they're trying to make. Using subversion, and I didn't say this earlier, but the situationist called, called what they did detournement, which means the kind of subverting, going underneath, going around, finding ways around. Making art on the streets, so being public, making things in public and DIY creative production. So I think this is part of what makes the Extinction Rebellion movement both really easy to identify and quick to grow. But there's a huge challenge because we've got a very short time left to make the changes happen that we need to happen. And we need to also be creating a regenerative culture in all our professions that understands the finite resources we have left. <laughs>